Okay. How are everybody feeling? Okay, all right. We're looking at um, Exodus chapter 5 today. How many of you guys saw the Prince of Egypt? All right. I enjoyed it for its entertainment purpose. Uh, I don't know how biblically uh, there are some parts that they kind of had some artistic license with. Uh, but it was fun to watch. And uh, we're picking up the scriptures today uh, from the life of Moses, which is what the Prince of Egypt is about. Uh, in Exodus chapter 2, when Moses was younger, he sensed the call of God on his life. If you know the story of Moses, he's a Hebrew, an Israelite. And when I use those terms, I'm, I'm using them synonymously, in case you guys are wondering. And it was a time in which Pharaoh ordered that all of the Hebrew babies be thrown into the Nile and killed. And during this time, Moses' mom put baby Moses into a little basket, put, her into the wa- put, it, put him into the water, and sent them down the river. And then in the movie Prince of Egypt, you see his sister, older sister Miriam, and she's singing this song, like a Disney song, and she's watching baby Moses going down the river. And then Pharaoh, uh, one of Pharaoh's daughters, I believe, she picks up uh, the, uh, Moses out of the, out of the water, and so that's why his name is Moses. It means he's drawn out of the water. And he grows up in the house of Pharaoh, like one of his sons. And so Moses gets educated. He gets better education than the rest of the Israelites. Uh, he's better cultured. Uh, but when he became a young adult, he sensed the call of God on his life. And in Exodus chapter 2, with that calling, he tried to fulfill it in his own way. So if you, don't, if you don't know the story, Moses is walking through the streets one day and he sees an Egyptian slave master beaten on one of the Hebrews. And when he looks to the left, looks to the right and sees that nobody's around, he sneaks up and he tries to save his own people by killing the Egyptian and then hiding his body. And then... Uh, when uh, Moses tried to fulfill the call of God in his own way, things got really bad. He killed somebody. He murdered someone. And then not only did it get bad, it went from bad to worse because people found out that he had done it. Eventually, Pharaoh found out that he had murdered one of these Egyptian slave drivers. And the Bible says that Pharaoh sought to kill Moses. And uh, all of this ended up Driving Moses out to the wilderness. Excuse me, my eyes all itchy again. Must be the devil. <laughs> trying to distract me. But I'm all good. I'm going to keep flowing. All right, hallelujah. All right, so that was the result. Things went from bad to worse for Moses because he tried to fulfill God's purpose and call for his life in his own way. Now, many, many, many years later, after spending all these years in the wilderness and getting married to uh, Zipporah, one of these foreign wives out there. In Exodus chapter 5, by this time, God appears to him in an earlier chapter in a burning bush, calls him to go back into Egypt in his old age and to demand that Pharaoh let the Israelites go. Now, this Pharaoh is not the Pharaoh that was trying to kill Moses. This is probably his son. This is another Pharaoh that had taken over, taken over another king of Egypt. And... 
By Exodus chapter 5, Moses, although reluctantly, he, he answers God's call in God's way. And he goes back into Egypt. Hey, don't get distracted by the eyes. Come on, stay with me. Stay with me. Hallelujah. Vicky devil. Uh, and, God, and Moses fulfills God's call, God's way. And guess what happens? Things go bad again. And not only do things go bad, but things go from bad to worse. Because not only does the new Pharaoh says, I'm not letting the Israelites go. These are my slaves. These are my workers. Why would I ever ruin my economy by letting them go and worship in the mountains or out in the desert somewhere? I ain't doing nothing like that. Right? And then um, not only does he say no, but Pharaoh commands that the straw that is required to build the bricks be taken away, no longer supplied. So that now the Israelite slaves, they have to go and find their own straw, which takes and requires a lot more time. But Pharaoh still requires of them the same quota of bricks. So what ends up happening is many of these uh, Hebrew slaves, they go out, find straw, they bring it back, but they don't have enough time to make all the bricks. And so the slave masters just beat them. And there's just Hebrews being beaten all over the land. And then verse 21, look at verse 21. Uh, some of the, the leaders of the Israelite slaves, some of these Israelite leaders go and meet Pharaoh. And they come up to Pharaoh and they're like, what is going on? I think some of the slave masters that you have hired, they're going a little crazy. Because this past week they took away our straw and then told us to go find our own. And then told us to meet the same quota of bricks. I think those slave drivers... You know, they, they've been in the sun too long. Pharaoh, you need to talk to them. And Pharaoh's like, no, that's my doing. I did that. It's because y'all are idle that you keep wanting to go out to the, to the desert and, and, and worship the Lord. You're, you're idle. That's why you're saying, let us go and sacrifice to God. You go and work. And they're like, what are you talking about? We never said that. And then they find out, probably through Pharaoh, that Moses and Aaron are responsible for this request. So on their way out from Pharaoh's presence, verse 21, they, they see Moses and Aaron. And so they say to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so the very people that Moses was trying to save and help, they're blaming him and saying, You've made our lives a living hell. Thanks a lot. May the Lord judge you. All right. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. You know what I mean? You are, you feel the call of God to help out a friend. And you start praying for that friend. And you start reaching out to that friend. And as you reach out to that friend, all of a sudden, something crazy happens in that friend's life. And then the friend comes up to you and says, Hey, Sonia! I don't know what's going on, but ever since you started praying for me, my life has been getting worse. Thanks a lot. You know, I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. Where you actually do the right thing. You're actually praying, you're obeying the Lord. But your obedience seems to make things worse. I don't know if you, you guys uh, ever experienced that. Um, you pray for someone who's sick and they get sicker. 
Is that a word? That's, that's a word. Why y'all look at me like that? Sicker is a word. Is it? It's not. They get more sick. Hallelujah. Sound, I, they should make it a word. It's, it's fun to say. Sicker. I don't want you to get sicker. Uh, but yeah, you pray for them. And then, you know, they call you up. Hey, Mark Rado. Yo, yo, Mark. Hey, man, I appreciated you praying for me and putting your hand on my shoulder last week. And uh, after you prayed for me, guess what? Hey, what, what, what? My shoulder got worse. And now I have a pain also in my right knee. And I think my liver, there's something wrong with my liver. You know? And you're trying to help them. You're trying to reach out to them. You're praying for them. You're obeying the Lord. But the moment you do that, things start getting bad and things start getting worse. And I'm here to tell you today that when these things happen, it's not because it's your fault. And it's not because God's trying to embarrass you. Uh, look at look at how Moses responds, right? So they blame Moses and look at the verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. I mean, that's, that's like putting God on the, uh, God on the witness stand. You know, he's like, it's like, God, why have you done this evil to this people? And why'd you get me involved? I told you I'm not an eloquent speaker. Look at it, look at God, you haven't done anything that you promised. Right? And you know what? Sometimes what Moses is doing here, this is exactly what we do. We pray into something. We start walking towards something. And we think that's God's will for us. The moment we start to do that, things start falling apart. Things actually start getting worse all around you. And you're like, God, where are you? I thought I was supposed to be in Seoul. But I can't stand it here. I don't know how long I can, I can make it. Lord, why are you doing this evil to me? Take me back to Colorado. I don't, I don't know. But we're tempted to respond in this way. And sometimes we do. And today I just want to share with you three reasons why it is getting worse. Now, sometimes it gets worse because it's your fault. Like in Moses' youth, when things got worse, when it got, went from bad to worse, that's because he murdered somebody. That's because he took the call of God into his own hands and tried to fulfill it in his own way. But I'm talking about when things get worse, when you're doing the right thing. When you're obeying the Lord, when you're being led by His Spirit, and you know you have uh, the covering of spiritual leaders, and they're just affirming you and saying, yeah, that is the way you should go. I think you're doing a great job. You need to keep going in that direction. And as you do that, things get worse. I'm going to give you three reasons why it might be getting worse. Number one, things may be getting worse, and it's actually because it's a smokescreen of the enemy. It is a smokescreen of the enemy. For example, you pray for somebody's physical healing and they start getting worse. That may actually be a smokescreen of the enemy to convince you that your prayers are ineffective. To convince you and lie to you that your prayers are actually making them sicker. It's a smokescreen. 
But in actuality, the real story is Satan is threatened by your prayers. Satan is scared stiff by your obedience. And he wants to do everything possible to take you off your path of faith and into unbelief. So he'll set up these smoke screens in order to attack us. Because, you know, when things get worse, when we're doing the right thing, we're tempted to think, am I doing something wrong? Am I being punished? Am I missing something? And these are some of the thoughts that go through our heads. But we have to understand that sometimes things are getting worse because the enemy is attacking. It is a lie and a smokescreen of the enemy. Uh, Which brings me to our wonderful story from India with our sister Eunice Ko, whom I will honor, who is not here today, but I will honor her by sharing her little story that you've heard many, many times. But for the newcomers, this is a wonderful story that you've never heard before. We were in India in February for a mission trip. And we had a wonderful time. There was powerful deliverance. There's a lot of people getting delivered from demon spirits. People getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, just, just apostolic teaching, establishing people in the Word of God. It was a wonderful trip, a very fruitful trip. And at the end of the trip, on the last night, Pastor Aaron wakes me up at like 2 in the morning and says, you got to hurry up and come to the girls' room because Eunice Ko is an incredible pain. She is in incredible torment. You got to come and you got you to pray for her. And so I, you know, all groggy, I wake up and I'm like, oh, man, why can't y'all learn how to pray and <laughs> heal Eunice on your own? Why must you always call me? No, I'm just kidding. Now I went in, you know, like a father and I went into the room and I saw Eunice and this is Eunice. She was like, oh, and she was like digging her fist into her, her stomach because she was in so much pain. And she was doing this, like, ah, like King Kong on her stomach. She was in so much pain. And I, I was afraid it was appendicitis because I had appendicitis in high school. And so I check. And the way you check for appendicitis is you, you press down on the stomach and then it doesn't hurt. But when you let go, it's called a rebound pain. It, it's excruciating, the pain. That's how you identify appendicitis, just in case you didn't know. If somebody starts getting throwing up and getting a fever and have a lot of tremendous abdominal pain, make sure you do the rebound pain. It's like, does it hurt? No? How about now? Oh! Uh, that's appendicitis. So I do that for Eunice and nothing. She's just pain. Like, does this hurt? Yeah! Does this hurt? Yeah! Everything hurts. She's just non, non-stop pain. And so we just start to pray and... Uh, I got the brothers. We woke up all the brothers. I'm like, if if we're going to suffer through this, the brothers need to be here as well. Go wake up the brothers. You know, so all the brothers come in and Andy's like, yeah, yeah, and comes in. And and we we just start singing praise songs and we just start praying in the spirit. We start just casting things off and just praying. And we went at it for like two hours. And the pain, and the pain was demonic because the pain as we were praying for her stomach, it started to move into her teeth. Okay? And so she was like, my teeth are in pain. Oh, my teeth are... Oh, I can't move my mouth. And I was like, that's demonic. And then the pain started moving into her right arm. We started praying for her right arm. It goes into her left arm. It goes going, running down to her leg. And I was like, oh, okay. You, you want to play hide and seek, little demon? Are uh, you, you, you... You... Anyway... <laughs> Have my little conversation with the demonic spirit there. We're praying, and uh, after about two hours, the pain starts to subside finally. She stops pounding her stomach, and she's, she looks like she's better. 
And so I was like, all right, check, Eunice, right, do you feel all better? She said, like, I feel a lot better. But I don't feel completely better. I feel a lot better. And we're like, okay, hallelujah. We'll keep praying. And as we're about to continue to pray for her, she's like, oh, the pain's back. Ah! She starts pounding her stomach again, right? And so by this time, we had discerned that it was actually a counterattack. Um, well, here's a, let me get the story accurate. Erin read, she got a prophetic word to read Psalm 18, right? And she reads all of Psalm 18. And by the time she reads the last line of Psalm 18, uh, all the pain subsided. So she, it was all gone. Right? And then, um, wait, am I getting the story right? Was the counterattack? She, 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 it was at the very end, right? Okay, so yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. So we prayed for her. Are you okay? And she said, no, it wasn't completely gone. And then the pain came back. And we discerned that to be the counterattack. And then the way we dealt with the counterattack was a little bit different than the original attack. And we just, believed in our hearts that the counterattack was a smokescreen of the enemy. So the original attack was pretty hard and stubborn to get out. But once we got the original attack out, we knew that the counterattack was simply a lie. And the lie said, your prayers affected nothing. I'm still here and I'm not going anywhere. And you're never going get to me, get me out of here, right? And so we discerned that that's a lie. And so we just kind of went after the counterattack and the counterattack only lasted maybe like five to ten minutes. And after we just prayed through the counterattack, she was completely better. We said, are you, are you okay? And she said, yeah, well, it better be gone. And she got up and she was like, all like, 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 you know. I was like, okay, she looked like she's better. She went in and she washed up and she was completely better after that. Um, you see, sometimes we pray for things. And Satan deceives us into thinking that our prayers are affecting nothing. And it's actually a smokescreen of the enemy. One year ago, we were praying for North Korea on March 26. Pastor uh, John Michael had given a message on why pray for North Korea. And so that night, we started praying hard for North Korea after we got the message. And I got a prophetic word that God is going to bring a political shift in 2010 that will make way for the doors of North Korea to open up. And so I just prophesied that, and we we're just praying hard. And then when we went home from Friday fire that night, I got a text message from our sister Gloria at Hillside, and she told me that a warship just sank. The same night, the same hour we were praying, there was an attack on the Chunan warship, and it had sank. Now, we could have interpreted that to mean that our prayers affected nothing, and Satan is attacking this worship in order to just laugh at us and say, look, your prayers did nothing. But what we interpreted it to mean is that it was a smokescreen of the enemy. Satan is just trying to make the whole country filled with fear and anxiety. And there were some people that were prophetic that were prophesying, judgment on Korea, unless Korea repents, there's going to be judgment. And I just felt like that wasn't a sound interpretation of what was going on. I just felt like it was a sign actually of our breakthrough. That the Chanan worship sank, and that actually God used that to open up political shifts for America. America immediately uh, changed their political stance with North Korea. South Korea changed their political stance. Japan was trying to evacuate American Marines out of Okinawa, and the Prime Minister was elected on that issue. But when the Chanan worship sank, 
he relented from that issue and was heavily criticized by the Japanese people. But Japan changed their stance. Later in the year, China also informally began to change their stance. And instead of supporting uh, and being worried about their geopolitical issues along the uh, China-North Korea border, they began to say informally behind closed doors and telling reporters without getting their name on the record that they were supportive of a unified Korea under Seoul's government. Right? So, I mean, there's a lot of political shift that took place last year. But all you did was look at the Chunan warship sinking and the Yang, Yangpyeong, uh, Yangpyeong or Yangpyeong, whatever island's shelling. If that's all you looked at, you would have been deceived into thinking that Satan's got the upper hand. That our prayers are affecting nothing. That we're back to square one. And that's a lie of the enemy. We need to understand that our prayers are shifting things in the spirit realm. <clears throat> Another thing that, um, in which things seem to go from bad to worse was with the joint prayer meeting. And this is something I never shared before, but I'm just going to share without getting into all the details. But I'm going to share essentially what happened last year with the joint prayer meeting. In November of 2008, our church started a joint prayer meeting, a monthly prayer meeting for English speakers all over the Seoul area. And we partnered with only the English ministry, and we began to meet third Saturday every month. And we started praying for Korea, we started praying for the city, praying for vital issues with the body of Christ. And it was powerful. And at these joint prayer meetings, people would uh, get baptized in the Spirit for the first time. There are a few people that even got saved at the joint prayer meeting. People were getting healed and delivered at the altar calls. Sharp words of knowledge were going out. People were just, there were signs and wonders showing up. And it was powerful. Like almost every month there was something powerful going on at the joint prayer meeting. Even last night, it was really powerful. But for two years we ran with only the English ministry. And last summer, uh, we had approached uh, Jubilee and the leaders of Jubilee, and we just asked them, "Would you like consider to? Would you consider committing to this prayer movement on a formal level?" And so, you know, the leaders of Jubilee felt like they needed to meet about it, and so they met and had an elders meeting. And after a couple months of discussion, they just decided that uh, different ministry philosophies and things that you know that they weren't comfortable with, they just felt like it wasn't the right fit for them to commit on a formal level, to like mobilize their pastors and their leaders to be there every month. And so they said, we will informally support the joint prayer meeting. We'll let you use our facilities. But in terms of a formal commitment, we don't feel like it fits right now. Okay? And that was all right. That was okay with me. You know, it wasn't like a huge surprise. I was hoping that they would. But, you know, it wasn't like they were coming out every month anyway. So, you know, it wasn't like a big change for the rest of the group. Well, a couple months after their decision, there was a third church that was joined in with the joint prayer meeting, and that was Burning Land, Pastor Paul's church. And uh, unfortunately, through a lot of different personal issues that he was going through, uh, Burning Land had to close down. And so that was a discouragement for me. It, I mean, it discouraged me because, you know, I really was encouraged by Burning Lamp's uh, passion and their commitment to the prayer movement, and they had to close down. And then that was around like October, November. And then around the same time, uh, like late November, early December, uh, Onuri, uh, uh, Pastor Eddie sat down with me 
And he, and he presented to me that there were some concerns among the only leaders and staff. And I mean, make a long story short, they felt like for the new year, they wanted to pursue other interests. And so, you know, I, you know, they're doing it right now. They're doing the not for sale conference. They're really going after the freedom issue, the human trafficking issue. And I really blessed them to do it. But at that moment, you know, it was, it was discouraging. Cause not only did, you know, Jubilee say, ah, oh, no, not this time. Burning lamp closed down. And now only he's walking away from it. The issue was like, how can you have a joint prayer meeting without other churches? You know, it's just new Philly. And so, uh, we met, we met with the core leaders and we started discussing, uh, well, what is going on? What do we want to do about this? Do we want to shut down the joint prayer meeting? And our, our core leaders felt, you know what? Let's keep meeting. Because this joint prayer movement is much bigger than just the value of getting churches together for fellowship and unity. That there's something bigger. There's a prayer movement going on and that that stream has started and we need to keep it flowing. And we need to keep it flowing into heaven and from heaven down to earth. And we need to pray his kingdom come, his will be done in Korea right now. We need to keep on meeting. And so we made that decision. But to be honest, I was a little bit concerned that there were no other churches really formally committed to the joint prayer meeting. And so the way we consoled ourselves was we said, well, New Philly Itaewon is a different church. And so we really have two churches getting together. So you know what? We'll keep it going. Anyway, um, as I was processing, you know, what was happening with the joint prayer meeting, uh, I was tempted to get very discouraged. And uh, actually, I started to blame myself. And uh, started saying, you know, it's really, it's really my fault that this is happening. It's because of what I said last month and probably the month before that. And also the month before that. Actually, I said something offensive almost every month of the joint prayer meeting. Yeah, it's probably me, you know. Uh, they just don't like me. Uh, I'm a little rude. I'm rough around the edges. You know, and I just started to think. Man, if I had done it better, if I had been more courteous, if I had been more sensitive, then the joint prayer meeting would still be going on strong, you know, without anyone walking away from it. And, uh, and those attacks started to come. And then on December 17th, Pastor Benjamin was here, and we were meeting with the staff and the corps, and we, he was just prophesying over everyone. Like, we're just hanging out one moment, and then he just smiles, and then he goes, Mina, and he just starts prophesying over Mina, and then he goes, Pastor Myungwa, and then starts like saying one word, and Pastor Myungwa's in tears. Ah, you are the Sarah of the house, all this stuff, and then and then it just prophesied over every single one of us, and it was like really like strong, really really powerful, and then he just says, I'm going to read it verbatim. He says, and the Lord says the joint prayer meeting is not over. It's not done with. There is no loss. There is no loss. The devil wants you to think that everything is lost, that everyone has turned away, everyone has walked away, but it's a smokescreen and it's a lie because the opposite is happening. The Lord says there is a great ingathering that is coming, a great coming together, and the Lord says, I've already begun to stir hearts, and I've already begun to turn hearts toward you. And the Lord says, don't worry about it, it is in my hands. You continue to gather, you continue to meet, it is not done. I am not done with it, declares the Lord. 
I've only just begun. I've only just begun. There is no loss. The season of loss is over. It is over. It's done with. It's come to an end. And now there is only increase. Because you walk in the blessing of Abraham. Hallelujah. What you are doing is breaking up the fallow ground in this city, in this nation. So you are never to be moved when you see the fallow ground of religion. For I put a sledgehammer in your hand and a jackhammer to break it up. When he prophesied that, it just resonated. It just bore witness in my spirit. And I was just thinking, man, I'm just thinking about this all wrong. Here I am thinking it's all about Christian. It's all about Christian. It's the Christian show. Christian jacked up the Christian show. And that's why people left the Christian show. Pretty much Pastor Benjamin's like, it's not about you, brother. There's a smoke screen of the enemy. In fact, God's stirring up hearts. And actually, without me ever doing anything, the pastors of the AIM Network, they started meeting the month of January for a prayer meeting each month. They initiated that. And then they, they asked me to come and we were all there. And it's been good. The prayer meeting has been good every single month. It's been pretty spirit-filled too. Even the conservative pastors have been coming and getting a taste of it and just they, they like it. And it's growing. I didn't do any of that. It's true. God has been gathering people. He's been stirring up people's hearts. In fact, what God is doing, He's setting me up for even greater. He's setting us up for a greater manifestation of this prayer movement. There's going to be a great ingathering coming. Amen? Amen? So that's one. One reason why things can go from bad to worse is because it's smokescreen an enemy. Another reason is because God, it has nothing to do with the enemy. God is the one responsible and He's setting you up. Sometimes when you walk out in obedience, things actually go from bad to worse because God is setting you up. For a glorious breakthrough. Right now over at Living Hope. Which is the past. Uh, which is the church of my mentor. Pastor Benjamin Robinson. It's out, out, it's out in Emeryville, California. Near the Bay Area. <clears throat> a couple weeks ago. Pastor Benjamin. Was asked. Uh, what wasn't asked actually. Uh, they have a two floor building. And their main sanctuary is in their first floor. And it's nice. It's like a state-of-the-art sanctuary. And they have nice chairs. They, they have chairs that cost like 10 times the amount of one of these chairs. And uh, some guy just came in one day and wrote a check for like, I don't know, $50,000. And said, buy yourself all these chairs. And then buy the nice ones. So they have these nice chairs. They have a really nice setup there. And a couple of weeks ago, the landlord told him to get out. Because a new tenant's coming in. And so they were actually like being given favor to use the first floor almost for free. But now that a new tenant's coming in, they were like, you need to leave right now. And so Pastor Benjamin spent all day uh, last Sunday, a week ago, with uh, Marcus and Aaron and Lisa. And they just picked stuff up. They had, to, they had moved their offices from the second floor to the first floor. They had to move all that back up. They had to move the sanctuary back up. And so they did a lot of cleaning and moving last week. And... Pastor Benjamin has been believing God. He, he's been believing that, that the Lord was going to give him that building. But in recent, a month ago, his spiritual father, Pastor Robert Daniels, and also his natural father, 
Pastor uh, Peter, Peter Robinson, they both started to say, <clears throat> you're aiming too small. That's actually not the building God wants to give you. He wants to give you this bigger building down the street. And so Pastor Benjamin was all like, you know, you know, what's going on? I thought we had heard from the Lord, you know. And so they just started to shift their prayers toward that newer building. In the process of praying for that newer building, and now they're, you know, you're thinking, yeah, you're, you know, we're, we're, now we're on it. We're supposed to be in that building. The moment they start praying for the new building, they get kicked out of the one that they're currently in. Things go from bad to worse. Well, let me tell you what's worse for them right now. Not only did he get kicked out of the sanctuary, I mean, imagine <clears throat> the landlord here comes in during our Sunday service, like right now, and starts yelling in Korean and tells everybody to get out. And I like, wouldn't talk about we pay rent. And they're like, get out. Because uh, there's a, somebody who wants to pay double the rent that wants to come in right now. And we, we're going to kick you out. I mean, imagine if we had no place to worship. And we can't go back to King Bar. Hey, King Bar. Remember us? They're like, no, no, no. We, we can't have you. No, actually, we have a good relationship with King Bar. Uh, we, we do. King Bar owner still likes me. All right. But, uh, but yeah, anyway, if we... If you got kicked out, imagine like the emotion, imagine just logistically. I mean, they're going through a hard time. Well, you think that's bad, it goes from bad to worse. Because not only was Pastor Benjamin and Sonny believing to, for God to give them the building, they were actually believing God for a new home. Because, you know, we've, Aaron and I visited in February, and their home is nice, but it's kind of small. You know, and so when they visited our home in uh, April... You know, I was just thinking, you know, like, oh, man, you know, Pastor Benjamin, you know, we want to pray for you to get a bigger home. Because our home is like bigger than the one you have back in, back in the States. I just don't feel right. I feel like my spiritual father should live in a bigger home. You're a bigger guy. You have a child. You know, you, you guys are living in America. Everything should be bigger in America. So, you know, we're, we're praying with him in agreement for a newer home. Well, here's the thing. The same week they got kicked out of the sanctuary... They foreclosed, the bank foreclosed on his home. Gave him just a couple of days to move out. So right now they're staying with uh, Pastor Sonny's brother. And, you know, they have little Elatia. You know, this is, this, you know, this is hard stuff. And then the same week, uh, he's working on his PhD right now. And he has an awesome dissertation. Uh, he told me, he shared with me the, the idea behind it. And it's a, it's a powerful revelation that's going to bless the entire body of Christ. And I believe it's going to be turned into a book. And uh, we we're talking about it. Well, here's the thing. They, the university that's hosting his PhD, they're claiming that he's not making enough progress. And so they kicked him out of the PhD program. So it was all within the same week. So you go from getting kicked out of the sanctuary. All right, we can handle that. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We'll keep on rejoicing. Uh, you're kick, getting kicked out the house. Oh, hallelujah. Okay. I heard Karina actually was there. Karina, uh, our intern, summer intern, she, she lives with Pastor Benjamin and Sonny. She went with Pastor Sonny the day that they went to the door and there was a posting. You got to get out in a couple of days. And Pastor Sonny looked at it and says... Hallelujah, the Lord is giving us a new home. And she just opened the door and just went in like, you know, she didn't miss a beat. But imagine that she had, they had to deal with that and then they actually move out. And then he gets a phone call saying, you're kicked out of the PhD program. So make a long story short, 
Pastor Benjamin, I mean, he was vulnerable enough with me to say that, he shared with me that he almost got an anxiety attack. When all three things just kind of came together, uh, he was on the sofa one time and he just couldn't breathe, he said. And he, and he, just, he just felt like he was paralyzed. He just couldn't breathe. And he just felt like the whole world was going to cave in on him. And he broke out of it you know, fairly quickly that same day. And he told me later on that it was just a lapse of unbelief. It was just for one moment. He just had a lapse of unbelief and that allowed the enemy to get in there with the anxiety attack. But he got out of there, out of that place of anxiety, and now he's just standing strong and he's just explaining to me that the foreclosure is a prophetic thing, that God is uh, having him uh, have compassion for his congregation members because many of them are experiencing foreclosure. And so it's a way for him to, for God to mobilize his prayers, to pray for his people, but also that God's setting him up for his new home. So they're believing God for a five-bedroom home. I mean, if you're going to pray for a new home, I might as well just go crazy, right? Five-bedroom, right? And so they're praying for a new home, and they explain to me that, you know, it's okay. In the natural, there's no evidence that we're going to get the bigger building. And we're just going to have to just just uh, take on this discomfort until then. But we're believing God and His promise. Just because all these things are happening does not mean His promises are not true. And they're just standing in that place of faith. And for his PhD program, he just trusts that as they pray, favor is going to be released. When I see those three situations, other than the anxiety attack, I don't think Satan is particularly responsible for all three of those situations. I really think that God is responsible for Pastor Benjamin's situation. That God is actually setting him up. And things are, might be going from bad to worse, but God is actually setting him up for breakthrough. For an amazing miracle. A testimony in which God will receive all the glory. And then another reason, a third reason why things might go from bad to worse. Is sometimes it's actually a combination of both. Enemies attacking, lying to you, smoke screen says, Yup, look your prayers are making your friends sicker. You have no healing anointing. You are kidding yourself. Look at you. You don't even know what words to use. In Jesus, Jesus' name. And he might be throwing that smoke screen on you. And then God would actually, a third reason why things might go from bad to worse, he allows it because he actually wants to use the enemy's attack and turn it around for your good. He knows that, God knows that he can use the enemy's attack to propel you further in your faith. And it's actually a combination of both. That's why things are going from bad to worse. You know, this past week, my paternal grandmother passed away. And she is the only living grandparent that I have. And I actually grew up with this grandma when I was living in Tegu. Uh, also, when I was living in Philly, she came out and lived with us in Philly for like over a year. Uh, she used to... Um, walk around the neighborhood. And I always tell my grandma, how many, Philly's dangerous. You need to stop walking around the neighborhood. <laughs> she wouldn't care. She would walk around the neighborhood and she would always like uh, pick up totori. What are, what's totori in, in English? Acorns. She just pick up acorns and bring back like all these acorns and some of them had worms in it and stuff. I'm like, how many? What's the acorns back? 
And she like pick up like like all these weird plants, and she she claimed that we can eat them. And next thing you know, she's making some stew, and I, I'm I'm forced to eat them. Man, Korean grandparents, man. <laughs> she used to live with us, and uh, you know, I loved her very much. You know, she she passed away, um, and and so my dad flew in uh, from the states, from Philly to uh, attend the funeral. I went down to Tegu the other day, um, and you know it was it was tough. And uh, the thing is, the morning that I was about to head down to Tegu with my dad, I got a text message from my sister, and she told me that my mom was involved in a hit and run accident in the morning. So I'm like, "What's going on?" You know. Um, and then, you know, she also told me that my mom's been uh, waking up very depressed ever since the Harmony's death. Because my mom really loved uh, my Harmony, even though she wasn't her natural mother. Really just loved her, was praying for her. Um, and it, she, it just broke her heart that she can't come to Korea to grieve for, you know, the Harmony. Because, you know, there's estrangement that my dad has with my mom. And he generally doesn't feel comfortable with her being in the same room. So, you know, she's really depressed and, she, you know, she got involved with a hit and run. Some guy on drugs or drunk rear-ended her and then, and then tried to recover and then ended up scraping her, the side of her car and then just drove off. And my mom was in such shock, she couldn't really capture the license plate. So I was just thinking, man, what's going on? You know, it's already bad enough, you know, dealing with my grandmother's death. And, you know, and I have to let you know that grand, my grandmother, uh, as far as I know, was not a believer. Uh, she did not have, uh, she did not put her faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. So, I mean, as far as I know, I'm never going to see her again. You know, and that's, if anyone's ever been through something like that, you know, that's hard to deal with. It's hard to deal and grieve over someone that, you know, that you love. But it's also harder to grieve for someone that you feel like, there's no hope that you're going to ever see them again. I mean, the only way that I can hope that I'll ever see her again is if I start to abandon my mind and abandon the Bible and make up my own theology. But I'm really not interested in doing that. And so, you know, I'm processing all that and then I hear about my mom and all these things. And I was starting to get, I was starting to get tempted to just get discouraged. But I just, I just felt like my faith, my spirit started to rise up and I just started saying, no, you know what? This is a smokescreen of the enemy. The enemy is trying to, uh, discourage me, trying to take me from the place of faith into unbelief. And you know what? I'm not going to let him do that. And so I just started to declare over my family that, that this is the time of breakthrough. That all those prophecies about family breakthroughs, that's for me. That's not just for the church that I'm pastoring. That is for me personally because my whole dad's side of the family, they're not believers. And so I went down there with that hope and optimism. Can you uh, raise the mic? I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> and so uh, I went down to Tegu and saw my family and it was really good. It was the first time my dad's side of the family was reunited ever. Since I left America back in 1985. And so to have all the family members in one place, including my dad, it was a huge deal. And the um, thing about my dad is, although he's like an atheist and he's really, uh, he hates Christianity because 
He saw a lot of corrupt churches down in Tegu as he was growing up. Uh, although he's an atheist, he's actually very likable. He used to uh, be in charge of like the drama troupe at his college. And uh, also when he was in the military, uh, he, was, he would direct the acting group, the drama troupe. And they would provide entertainment for the soldiers and stuff like that. And he's got, he's got a lot. That's actually how my mom fell in love with him. He was like acting one day and was really passionate. And my mom was like, who's that? So my dad, man, he, he, he even looks like a, a guy who's just, he's got a lot of charisma, you know? And it's real funny. This is real funny. I didn't share this at Hillside, but it's real funny. When I picked him up at the KTX train station at Seoul, Seoul station, uh, I ordered McDonald's and I asked him, do you want some McDonald's too? And so, uh, we sat down and we're, uh, we actually have to eat in the train. And so we're eating in the train and I look over at him and guess what he's doing? His burger is still wrapped up. And then he's taking out one fry at a time and putting ketchup onto each fry and eating them. Now, I don't know how many of y'all do it in here. Not many people do that. But if you know me, that's exactly what I do. Usually I eat the fries first. I'm going to convert many of y'all in here right now. Uh, I eat the fries first because when fries, uh, they shiggle, when they, when they get lukewarm, they're not that good anymore. So you got to get them when they're crisp and they're hot. You know? And so I, I make sure I eat the fries first and then I eat the burger. You know what I mean? And so I look over at my dad. I'm like, that is the darnest thing. My, I've never seen my dad do that before. How did I know to do that? You know, and I just realized, man, he, this is my dad. You are my dad. <laughs> and he, he's like eating his fries. He's like, where? <laughs> and you know, I realized, man, my dad... Uh, when he got to the funeral at the hospital, he just lit up the whole room. Like, he just sat down, everybody wanted to talk to him, and people are grieving, but they're like, oh man, your dad is so mushy, so your dad's, like, everyone likes your dad, you know? And I was like, wow, you're, my dad does have a lot of charisma. And that's where I get it from, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Father like son. And, uh, Pastor Paul and I, we've been praying last year for my dad, and I believe my dad, and this is the word that I'm just holding on to, is that God is going to awaken him, revive him, fill him with the Holy Spirit. See, I don't, I'm not happy if my dad calls me and said, I've decided to go to church. See, I'll, make, I'll actually be suspicious if he just says that. All right. But I want a phone call where my dad's like, I went to a conference, I went to a church, and uh, somebody picked me out the crowd, prophesied over me, I went down on the power of the Holy Spirit, I received Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, I started speaking in tongues, I got up and started prophesying for my neighbor, and now I want to serve the Lord out onto the missions field. Are you there, son? Now, that's the phone call I'm expecting. And anyway, one thing I know about my dad, when my dad gets converted... He's not going to have a single religious bone inside of him because he hates religion. You know what? I hate religion too. I, re- I hate whatever Pharisaic religious spirit that tries to model itself as Christianity. But when it comes down to it, it is a form of godliness that denies the power of God. That is not true Christianity. A lot of the religious systems that we have out there is not true Christianity. It, it, it may have the grace of God in there to save people. But it is not the church that Christ intended when he died for her on the cross. As so I'm just believing that God's going to raise him up as a mighty evangelist. That he's going to get to go over all of Korea. And he's going to use his charisma 
And he's just going to preach the gospel and just see masses of people saved. <clears throat> and so when I was there, down there, it looked like things were going from bad to worse. And I was worried about my mom. I was worried about my family. But when I went down there, I just, I just started to stand in faith. God, you have orchestrated all this. And you're going to even use the devil's works. You're going to turn it around for my good. And so, yeah, I saw signs of that. You know, my family started to really just uh, open up their hearts. Here's a, here's a cool sign. My youngest uncle, he's like six foot two, you know. Actually, all of my cousins are 5'10 to 6 feet. And my dad is like 5'10, five, 5'9. Five, and my, all my uncles are like, like really tall as well. So I am the shortest man on my dad's side of the family, which, which proves my theory that I stunted my growth by taking karate when I was in eighth grade. <laughs> when you have kids, don't, don't give them strenuous exercises when they're going through puberty. Because I remember my legs started growing all of a sudden, but I was like taking karate and it was, I put so much stress on my legs and then my legs started bowing out like this. And I had all this pain, tendonitis on my knee. That's my theory. I should be like 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, I'm sorry, that had nothing to do with the message. But uh, my, my youngest uncle, he close, most closely resembles my dad in that he's very independent, very like emotionless, very staunch, very like uh, goal-driven, things like that. And so he's involved with like politics here and stuff. He actually knows some really... Uh, really uh, prominent people and so there were all these flowers from like the president of this company and the the, the, the chancellor of that and whatever like there's all these huge flowers there and uh he acts actually um he has three children he has a daughter and two sons they're my cousins and uh a few years ago he left the house to live on his own that's kind of ridiculous because the home that he bought for his wife and children is like nice it was like a really nice home. We, Aaron and I got to crash there whenever we go down there. But he refused to go home because he was just so estranged from his wife. Um, now, the good news is none of my uncles officially divorced their wives except my dad. And so that's why I say the youngest uncle resembles my dad the most. Like he just kind of looks up to my dad as a mentor and things like that. And so he almost is like almost taking the same path as my dad. But the cool thing is, as I've been praying for my family... Just a few months ago, he moved back into the house. That's huge. Now, he hasn't changed. He's still, like, he has, like, his own little room. He took the most, he, they actually moved to a bigger place, a little castle down there. And they're, like, in this huge, like, 68-pyong apartment. And then he takes the smallest room because he still wants to be by himself. But at least he's in the house. And I just believe that that's a sign that God is moving. And while we were down there, my sister said that when my youngest uncle was watching the burial, I mean, I, I couldn't cry. It was really hard to grieve. But then the moment they um, started to lower the casket into the, I don't know, something about lowering the casket into the ground. Man, I was, I was, it's like, I mean, they're not alive. You can't really say goodbye. You know, they, you already lost your chance to say goodbye. But as they're like lowering into the ground, like, like I just broke. I started grieving. But my youngest uncle, his face was just like apathetic. And so my sister said that she went over and she just touched his elbow. 
And the moment she touched his elbow, he just started breaking and crying. And then, you know, my sister's getting more and more spirit-filled. You know, like that's a prayer for me, for me, for on behalf of my dad's side of the family, is that my sister will get revival. And she's been getting revival for the last year and a half. And so she discerned that the reason why my uncle started crying when she placed her hand on his elbow is because he just needed to know that it's okay to cry. Because when he looked around to my other uncles, it looked like it's not okay to cry. Men don't cry. Men don't grieve. That's the message that they send with their faces. And she just was telling him it's all right to be vulnerable. And so, I mean, there's just all these signs that, although the initial signs look like things are going from bad to worse, when I got down there and continued to stay in faith, I was able to discern them that God is moving in my family. God is moving in my family. And you know what? God's moving in yours. I know you've been praying, and the harder you pray, it seems like the harder your siblings parties. The harder your sibling is doing drugs. You're praying for your sister. And every time you get on the phone, you're trying to be gracious and loving. And they get more angry. Why are you being all loving? I hate this. You're too, too into God. I want my sister back. They talk about, no, no, no. I love you, sister. Shut up with all that love. And it just seems like they're, they're just getting more angry with you. And it might look like that nothing's happening. But don't trust, don't believe the hype. Don't just trust what you see. Trust what God is saying over your family. Trust what God is saying over your situation. Because when things go from bad to worse, it is actually a sign of the Lord's breakthrough. You know, there's going to come a time in these last days where things in the world are going to go from bad to to worse, to worser, to the worstest. Hey, tell your cousin or whoever it is, don't, don't take no vocabulary lessons for me. I'm making stuff up right now. Hallelujah. She, she understand English? She understand English? Oh yeah, okay. Oh, she just ignored me. Okay. It's all good. It's all right. <laughs> She's pretty good. She keep my straight face the whole time. All right, all right, all right, all right. I love you. It's okay. Welcome. Um, in the last days, you know, things are going to go from bad to worse. Uh, and Revelation twelve twelve gives us a gives us a clue of why it's going to happen that way. It says, "Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short." You know, as the end times draws near, the pressure is on Satan because he knows his time is short. But here's the thing. In the last days, when things go from bad to worse, those are not signs given to us for us to panic and fear. Those are signs given to us to rejoice and to look up toward the heavens Because the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, is drawing near. His return is imminent. And He is being being hastened onto us. 
when things go from bad to worse, we have to understand that when things go from bad to worse, these are actually signs of God's breakthrough. These are signs of God's moving. And when we experience it on a corporate level across the earth toward the last days, it's actually a sign of our redemption. It's a sign of Jesus' return. And so, you know what? When we begin to pray for North Korea and things look like it's getting worse over there, we pray for Iran. You guys remember a year, year and a half ago, we prayed for Iran for one month. And the same month, Iranian people revolted and like hundreds, even thousands were killed. And it may look like it's going from bad to worse. But we need to understand when we pray, the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. We're rewriting history through our prayers and our obedience. Let's just continue to press in. Let's pray right now. I want to just uh, invite, I'm going to take maybe just like six minutes. I'm just going to invite people that you feel like lately you've been praying or you've been answering God's call. And with every prayer or every step, it seems like things are getting worse. And you want to believe the word of the Lord today, but you could use a little help. You can use a little bit of agreement. Somebody else come in an agreement with your faith and saying, you know what? Things are not falling apart. This is not your fault. There is no loss. There is no lack. Everything is right where it needs to be. Your breakthrough is right at the doorstep. And you just need somebody to partner with your faith. If that's you, I want you to stand up to your feet. And we just want to take a few minutes and we just want to pray for people. I'm going to ask some of the pastors to come forward. Altar ministers, please come forward. And this is what we do at our church every single week. We pray because Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Prayer is a natural activity. It's, a na- it's the most natural thing to do in the church. And so we're just going to take a few minutes just to pray for people that just need a little bit of help just need somebody to partner with them and to say you know what don't trust what you see you know what things are right where they belong things are right where they need to be you just keep on pressing you just keep on praying and that's the we're just going to ask you to stand and we're going to just pray with you right now